Norman A. from the great state of California. Norman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, folks. My name is Norman, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm delighted to be here. I certainly want to thank you for the invitation to be here, you and the committee, to participate in this Kentucky Convention. I want to thank all of the people of Kentucky for the hospitality that they've shown us since our arrival. I want to welcome any and all new people that may be here today for your first, second, or third meeting, or first week or two around the program, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sure that you're sitting there and a lot of things are going through your mind, and I can say without reservation that you've made a giant step forward now. You've now associated yourself with one of the most popular, unpopular fellowships in the world. You know, nobody starts his life out wanting to become a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but <clears throat> I, I can speak only for myself and maybe a few of the other gentlemen here today. We didn't go down to our high school counselor, and he said, Norm, what would you like to be? And I said, man, I'd like to be an alcoholic. And he said, marvelous, we've got a program here for people like you. <clears throat> and I took it, and I went out and tore him up for 14 years and ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. No. There are a lot of other things that I would have rather been and rather done than to be an alcoholic. But I can say this without any reservation whatsoever, that if you've got a drinking problem, you never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. What you're going to find here in AA is a group of people who's going to know most everything about you, yet will still accept you. Who are not necessarily interested in where you've been or where you're trying to go, but we're damned interested in what you try to do today. And that's got to be a, a pretty good deal. That's got to be a break right off of the top, because... When I was out there drinking, you know, nobody was interested in me, unless they heard I was going to jail or leaving town. Then they were delighted over that. Other than that, man, nobody cared one way or another. So to the new people that are here today, we're awfully glad to have you. And, you know, I got a soft spot in my heart for everybody that gets to the program in February. My birthday is in February. It was last Friday. Uh, I kind of feel that we're the hardcore group in AA. We're the last of the Christmas holdouts. Us <laughs> My God, you know. We aren't going to get sober through them holidays for nobody, you know. We're going to run our head right through the wall, and I stayed out there, and I hammered that baby right down to the bottom. But to, to the new people, by golly, not to repeat myself, but we sure are glad to have you. And what you can use today, take it with you. What you can't, kick it out of the chair and leave it there. There's a lot of AA meetings to get to, and you get around and keep that open mind, and you're going to hear what you want to hear. To qualify the initial statement I made, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm not by any stretch of imagination an authority, a consultant, or a counselor on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm an example, good or bad, that AA works, that it has been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for over 19 years. I'm sure that nobody out there today is impressed with that statement, but man, I'm impressed with that statement, you see. <laughs> Not only that, you never know. Hell, we may get a pension program going here. <laughs> if we do, I want to get credit for all my time, you know. So you, you got to keep bringing that in. To the new people that may be out there today, I know that you're going to find it damn difficult to digest. When you hear a guy say, he hadn't had no booze out there for 19 years, you, you know, it's hard to visualize. If I'd have told you I hadn't had a drink for a couple of months, you'd have come up to me after the meeting and said, the hell you have, how'd you do it, you know? You can understand that two months, but it's damn difficult to understand 19 years unless you, you remember that I've been cutting it out there one day at a time. One day at a time. If you take care of the day, the day of the week will take care of itself and will the month and will the year. And pretty soon, it's 19 years. And it was like yesterday that I walked through the door 
And I sat down to that first AA meeting, just like yesterday, and I sat there wondering why it was that I was alcoholic. I thought, man, of all the things I could have been, why the hell am I an alcoholic? You know, all the new people go through this, I'm sure. It doesn't make any difference what age you are. I was 29 when I come in, and I thought, my God, 29, and the guy tells me i got to quit drinking for the rest of my life. And when you're 29 years old, the rest of your life is a long time. So uh, you ask questions. Well, why is it, you, you know, that I'm an alcoholic? And you talk to some people about it, and you read the pamphlets and the books, and you, you get to analyzing this, this thing to, to find out why, and they talk about nationalities. I think, you know, that's the reason I'm alcoholic. Hell, I'm Irish and Italian. That means, you know, <clears throat> well, you're not too bright, but it means you know a little bit about booze, too, you know. We know how to make that booze and how to drink booze, and we're making it and drinking it today, but I turn out to be the only alcoholic in the whole family. So apparently my family and my nationality didn't have any factor or any being the reason that I'm alcoholic. And I got to thinking, you know, this environment thing was coming around at that time, and you think, well, environment, hell, I'm born and raised in L.A. Anybody born and raised in L.A. has got to be hacked one way or another, you know, but I know a lot of guys that came out of L.A. and they've never had any booze problems, they've never been to jail, so apparently AA or Los Angeles didn't have any, <clears throat> any reasoning for the fact that I turned out to be alcoholic. I was able to come up, though, after giving this a lot of consideration, I was able to come up with one giant conclusion. I'm alcoholic because of the whiskey I consumed out there. I drank that baby as hard and as fast as I could drink it, and that is my reason. Somewhere through that lottery of my life, I crossed over the invisible line from the social aspect of drinking into the compulsive, where I was looking for the answer to living in a quart of whiskey, and one too many, and, and a thousand aren't enough, and I refused to believe it. And it happened to me, it came into my life maybe between the time I was 17 and 21 years old, I don't really know. And it really isn't important, but I had a few other things going for me out there. I'm a rationalizer, I'm a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude. And boy, you don't need much more than that. I had that long before I ever took my first drink. I traveled half the world in half my life making a complete ass of myself out there. I spent money I didn't have by things I didn't need trying to impress people I didn't like. And that's the story of my life until I got to AA. I rode all over hell trying to be all things to all people. I could sum that all up by saying, I'm the guy you see out there in L.A. It's 110 in the shade, and I'm driving around town in my car. I got all the windows rolled up to make everybody believe I got an air conditioner, you see. <laughs> I spent a lifetime impressing the human race out there. <laughs> Today when I'm driving around town, I see the guys with, with the windows rolled up in their car. You know what I think? Does he or doesn't he, you see? <laughs> Some lousy alky out there trying to impress me with that. But that <clears throat> takes a lot of doing, you know, running around trying to be all things to all people. I felt seriously for many years I was the general manager of the universe out there. A lot of responsibility. When I come to the program, you know, that's one of the greater parts of the program. When you run in, you find out you're no longer the general manager, buddy. You're only a drunk. You're home, you know, and you can lay down that responsibility. You can lay down going through those days waking up with that apprehension of, uh, where was I? Uh, what? Wherever it was, I better not go back there because I can't remember what I was when I was there. These are very embarrassing situations for the alcoholic. You know, you muscle up on the bar stool and you're drinking, and the guy says, what are you doing? And you say, well, hell, I'm the superintendent of a large corporation. He says, the hell you are. You were the vice president a week ago. What happened? You know? Well, these are embarrassing situations that you no longer have to go through once you... Once you walk through the door of this program and you buy the package that's available here, the sobriety and the way of life, 
One of the first things I learned when I come to AA that <clears throat> don't impress people in AA, Norm, that's what they said. We have been impressed by experts in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, you don't need to go through any of that, you know. But as a new person, why, you got to let on a little. And I thought I'd put this guy on one night, and I, I told him, I said, you know something, I've been in jail over 25 times. And he says, the hell you have, I made that in a year. You know, so <laughs> no matter where you've been, somebody got there long before you did. No matter what you drink, you're going to run across guys who drank more whiskey than you thought was built out there. The only way you can win a story in A is to be last, and then you're marginal. If you got a side door, you know, a guy comes in and gets you. So better off, you know, just come on in and relax. And when I learned to relax, you know what I found here? I found the package, and I took it out on the street. I found a way to walk the city street, and all I had to be was myself. And I think that's what I've looked for all my life, is to be able to spend a day on that city street, and all I had to be was me. I didn't have to be all of those people that I thought was so very, very important. I didn't have to justify my existence or compromise my life. I spent a day walking down the city street, and I spent it just being myself. This afternoon, I'd like to tell a little bit about what I was like, what happened, what I'm trying to be like today. Not that I'm going to try to impress you with the amount of booze I consumed or the joints or jails I ever had to go to, to to get here, but when a man says to me, how does AA work? To me, this is the way it works. It's <clears throat> Number one, it's obvious. It works through the book, because you can't make it. That's what they told me when I come here. They said, buddy, you can't make it here if you don't buy the book. Spend $3.50 and buy that book, and if you don't, you're going to get drunk. And that's the way they operate, and fine. It works through the book in the 12 steps. That's the way the program works. And secondly, it works because it's one drunk talking to another drunk, and between the two of you stay sober. But what do a couple of drugs talk about? They talk about the hack they had out there in the street and all of the hustle they went through. They talk about coming to the program and finding a new way to live. They talk about <clears throat> some of the things that they've used to stay sober over a given period of time. And today, I'd like to tell you a little bit about this, and we'll be out of here by 2.15, incidentally. <clears throat> but from there... To go back and digress just a little bit, I've been in trouble all my life. I never knew what trouble was about, or being out of trouble, rather, until I got to the program. I started going to jail in the late 30s, not for drinking in, beginning, in the beginning, but for stealing. I happened to be a thief by trade and alcoholic by absorption. I, I opened up the midnight auto supply in the San Gabriel Valley, and what that consisted of was stealing car parts. It all started out with popping hubcaps, and it just moved from there on out. You see, it got to be such a job to gather up all that crap, we stole a whole car, you know, and overnight the business went. And we cut the overhead down, you know, when you get a bunch like that, and you had a bigger melon to cut, and that's what they're teaching in marketing today, you know. I always felt I was ahead of everybody out there, you know, going in the wrong direction. Well, eventually I was arrested, because that's the way it's going to go. If you're going to play, you got to pay. The law of retribution, it simply states, but if you're going to dabble in the gray area out there, if you're going to buck the system, if you're going to <clears throat> stand out there and react to life and to living somewhere down the road, everything has to be accounted for. Frankly, I thought it was kind of a rotten setup for years and, and still do from time to time, but I don't know how you're going to change it. You know, it seems to be that everything's going out is coming back. And that's the way it is. And I appreciate it today for what it is, but as I stood in front of that judge, and I was sentenced to seven years in the Woody Reformatory, I couldn't believe it. Because I could, even at this age, I could always rationalize the giant rationalization. I'm standing there thinking, well, you know, how can he do that to me? I'm not that bad a guy. You know, what I was hooking was out there from people that could afford it. And kind of, you know, made me feel like Robin Hood. And my philosophy was, you know, steal from the rich and keep it. And that's why I... <laughs> 
So I stood there thinking, well, you know, why me? All of my life, that giant statement, why me? God, I'm not that bad a guy. Well, I went out to do the time. Through the circumstances and friends, a release came, and I was back on the streets of California. Before I know it, it was 1940, and that's when booze came into my life, it was 1940. Easter week in L.A. was a big time. Then it was Easter week, 1940. It was Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer. And it was a hell of a deal right from the beginning. I, I like drinking that booze and getting the buzz on and going into that desk. And you, you acted four times drunker than what you were, but you had a good time with it. I am not alcoholic in the beginning, and as was mentioned here several times at this convention, many people feel that they were alcoholic from the inception, and I'm sure in their particular case this is fact. In mine, I kind of worked at it. I moved out of Padre Beer up to Rainier Ale, that old green death, and down to Ten High Whiskey. And when I got to that whiskey, I found the greatest thing made since money and girls was whiskey, because whiskey gets you there quicker, and I've been in a hurry all my life. You know, I, I don't want to get there in a little while, I want to get there now, and getting there means you get there, and there is the plateau that the alcoholic drinks himself up to. You know, you start drinking that booze, and the more you drink, the better you feel, and the better you feel, the better the buzz, and pretty soon... You reach the ultimate. You're up on that plateau and you got the total buzz on up there. And you're good-looking, well-built, intellectual, and wealthy, and you got the job done in two hours, and that's the best deal I had up to that time. And that whiskey was the vehicle that took me up there. It put me there and it put me there now. That 10 high was cheap whiskey. Frankly, I didn't know that till I got to AA. It's amazing, isn't it, how your education broadens out once you get to the program. I heard some other good things from some alcoholics when I got here. They said there were other great advantages about drinking that cheap whiskey. When you threw it up, you didn't lose much, you know. <laughs> and it takes an alcoholic to figure that out, but that makes sense. Hell, if I'm out there drinking that $8 bourbon today and you're watching that baby roll up, boy, $8, there she goes. <laughs> God, that's enough to make you sick all over again to flash $8 out there. Don't get me wrong. Frankly, I've drank good whiskey and I've drank bad whiskey. <clears throat> but after you had four or five drinks, I could never tell the difference. Man, I, I could care less. Just so it's whiskey. That's all I cared about. <clears throat> so this 10 high, the reason I was drinking it was the guys I was running with. was drinking it, and I can recall the first night we're out. <laughs> with this group of guys that had nothing in the state of Oregon, and the guy reached into the glove compartment, he brought that baby out, and she's that glove compartment temperature you saw. And I tell you, he said, you want a drink? And I said, hell yeah, because I never turned nothing down in my life. I took a long drag out of it, and God, I'm telling you, it was like razor blades going down. It just tore at me all the way, and she's tearing coming up again. And you know how it'll run out your nose, and it makes your eyes water? <laughs> And then some, some friend of yours in the crowd says, man, ain't that good? Good, good, Jesus, it's good. You know, God, it's so damn good you can't hardly breathe. It's so good, God. You've got to train hard when you drink that 10 high, I'll tell you. But boy, I've been a guy with a lot of tenacity, and I trained, and I can remember the day I could drink a pint of 10 high and never heave a drop, and I thought, boy, you're there now, and that's all right. Well, I had a little more trouble up there in the state of Oregon. The reason I was in Oregon, and I got dabbling in the car business again in L.A., and I had to leave. I violated my probation. I went up there to Oregon, and I got back in the car business, and I got arrested again. And I was given a choice of going to jail or leaving the state, and so I left the state. Several years ago, a man in my group told my life story. He stood up there, and he said, if it, <clears throat> if it was too big to carry, I laid down beside it and claimed it. And I, <laughs> 
story of my life. I just dance a little like hooking things, I guess. So I came back to L.A. I turned into the probation department, and they had a program worked out. They said, son, you can go to jail or go in the service. So I'd been to jail. It was no deal, and I went into the service. I elected to go in the United States Navy in January of 1942. And I went in with all the aspirations of any young guy. I went in and thinking, you know, I'll get in here, and, and they'll appreciate me, and they'll see deep down inside that big heart of gold, and on it goes, and I will become the youngest lieutenant commander the Navy ever had. As it was, I was the oldest seaman they ever had. You see, I just couldn't get the thing off a dead center. Every time I turned around with a laying an arm on me, I had three court martials. I had a deck, a summary, and a general court martial. The general court martial happened to be the highest the Navy had to offer at that time. <laughs> it gave me a sense of well-being at the beginning because nobody on that ship had ever had one before. And they'd point me out and they'd say, "There goes the biggest <laughs> we ever had," you know. And as an alcoholic who is a very self-centered, egotistical person, you want attention. You want people to know you're around. So if you can't get it for being good, be lousy. But man, be lousier than anybody else. And I had no problem. Nobody was lousier than I was on that ship. And I thought it was rather clever when I got that general until he transferred me from the ship to the receiving ship brig, and I waited there to go to trial, and then there was a read-off, and then there was 11 and a half months in a Navy prison up there in the top of Goat Island run by the Marine Corps. I don't need to get into that. That was a bad deal. The, the warden of that penitentiary was a Marine gunnery sergeant, and he and God used to go to breakfast together every morning. You know, he, he accounted to nobody. And that, God, years ago, that song came out called Big John. And every time I'd hear it, I'd just kind of jump all over again, you know. Because that was his day, Big John, they call him. God. Well, I fulfilled the conditions of my enlistment. I had a four-year cruise to serve, and through uh, <clears throat> certain breaks at certain times, I was discharged, and I came back to L.A. under honorable, under, under honorable condition discharge. And the reason being, like most alcoholics, when you, <clears throat> you're, you're coming from behind, and you got the screws on, and when you get right and you're sober, you work hard, and you generally work harder than anybody else because you got to get the heat off. So when I was right, I was a pretty good sailor, and I sailed good. And every time I get in a jam, well, it seemed like somebody was coming to bat for me. I didn't get the kick out. I had a BCD remitted, but they never went ahead and fulfilled it. And I was able to come on out into the streets of Los Angeles in 1946. And in 1946, I was going to do a lot of things, like a lot of guys. I was going to make restitution to my people. I was going to make a amends. I was going home and tell my mother I was going to say, and mean it this time, I was going to say, baby, you're never going to have to cry for me no more because I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be like the old man and my brothers. I'm going to straighten out and I'm going to knock the booze off and you wait and see. Baby, you're never going to have to cry no more for me. It's going to be all right. And you know, I'm, I'm going to get going pretty soon on this or, or later on or tomorrow. I, I can't get going now because i got so damn much to do now. i got, I got to get a little bit to drink right now. That's what i got to do, you know. <clears throat> and the only reason that I bring this up is maybe for the benefit of the new people that may be here. When you come in, everybody walks through the door and they got a cross to carry. And sometimes you're going to make it big and sometimes you're going to make it bigger than is necessary. When I got sober and they talked about amends, I always wanted to go home. I always wanted to walk in the house and say, baby, it's all right. You know, I'm clean now. I've found AA, but it didn't come to pass. She never saw me out of a jam from the time I was 13 and I was 27 years old. And she was killed in a car wreck. <clears throat> and it bothered me quite a bit. And then one day I heard a serenity prayer and I must have heard it 50 times before that. But I never really heard it. It said, accept the things you cannot change. I can't change it. That's the way it is. All the money in the world won't change it. My, the prayers, the tears, my right arm thrown in. 
are not going to change the fact that that's the way it is, that God moves in strange and mysterious ways. The why, I don't know. I have in the background, the education, the understanding. I only know that certain things happen. They seem to make it a little stronger, maybe, for what's coming later on. I really don't know that. I only know that I had to clear away the wreckage. I knew, too, that nobody goes forever. Someday they're going to hang me out to dry, and I'll make the shot, and I'll check in. And I'll be able to say, baby, I'm sorry for all the trouble I caused you when you were there. But you know something? After you left, it got a hell of a lot better because I met a group of people, and they called themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. Not a rationalization, no. No, no, it's tough enough to live today with today's merchandise, isn't it? Let alone living with something that happened yesterday that you can't do a damn thing about, and it's wreckage of the past, and you you got to move it on out. I truly wanted to make those amends in 46, but the booze now has got pretty good hold of me. I am alcoholic. I can't go into a joint and sit down and have three or four drinks and want to get up and leave. If I have three or four drinks, I want to stay, and I'll go to any length to stay. I'll borrow the dough, I'll steal the money, I'll hock a ring or a watch, any length to be able to stay and continue to drink. Many times I couldn't. Many times I had to leave because these things weren't available. But I am alcoholic. I'm looking for the answer to living out there in a quart of whiskey. That is a fact. In 1946, I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's strange the way that this God moves to these strange and mysterious ways. Same rotten town. <clears throat> I was arrested five times that year. I had a bad year. <clears throat> I'd like to tell you the city, but this being an anonymous program, we can't go that far. I can only say they hold the rose parade there, you see. <laughs> But I hated that town, and that town hated me. I used to think there was an alarm system went around the city limits, and every time I crossed over, it went off. You know, I said, he's out there. You better get him. They got me, and I'm off. They got me on two 502s, which is drunk driving, and then they got me on two plain drunk charges. I stood in front of the judge. He says, the next time you come to my city drunk, you're going to do a year in a can. Get him out of here. But boy, that judge, I knew like my father. That judge and I kind of grown up together. I'd known him the better part of my life, you see. <clears throat> And I knew one thing about him, he had never lied to me before. And when he said, if I got picked up for being drunk, I was going to go to the castle. I would left that courtroom saying, I'm never coming back here. No more am I ever coming back here, no. So I drank out there on the perimeter. <laughs> a couple of months went by, and it got so good I couldn't stand it. You know what prosperity does, the old algae? And I was sitting there about 75 miles away, one night at Don Laguna Beach with a couple of guys, <clears throat> and I'm getting pretty drunk, and I committed the cardinal sin. While I was drinking, I began to think. That's a bad deal. You know it and I know it. You should do one or the other, either think or drink. Never get them both going at the same time. Because I got to thinking about that rotten judge in that lousy town of his, and this is a free country, and God knows I'm a veteran. Why, hell, the rationalization. What's left to do? I got my car, drove 75 miles back to the city. I got up on a bar stool, completed the evening. I got in my car, dead drunk, drove one down, down one of the main drags. Car pulled in front of me, and I was so drunk I couldn't see it, and I hit it and ran from the scene of the accident. And three blocks down the street, the police were jerking me out of the car. And they cuffed me and put me up in the felony tank. And I woke up in the morning going through that search and seizure program, you know, looking for your book and slip. And bring it out. And they got me on a 501 felony, drunk driving, hit and run, bodily injury involved. And but for the grace of God that looks after damn fools and drunks, four folks didn't die in the city street that night. You know, booze, alcoholism is a game of seconds and inches. That's all. That second and that inches. Had I been over three and a half feet. I'd have broadsided that car, and at the rate of speed I was traveling, all four would have been gone. No question about it. <clears throat> I think about this from time to time. When it gets to Sully out there on the street, I don't think I can stand it. God give me the strength to remember how it used to be. How it was that morning when I stood in front of that same judge, and he looked down at me with that hate <clears throat> and that pity. And he said, get him out of here. We don't want him on the city streets. He's a detriment to the highway. Get him the hell out of here. And I remember that. And I remember that I was very lucky, too. 
And I know that as you check into the lottery of life, you get a fistful of tickets and they say run. And every time you mess up, they got to have a ticket. And if you mess up enough, you tap out. And I'm tapped out. There's no question about that. I don't stay sober from the fear of it, but wouldn't a man be a damn fool not to realize how very lucky he's been? And when it gets so bad, I can't stand it. God, let me remember how lucky I've been. Just a few feet, just a fraction of a second. He sent me to the city jail to do the time, and I shared a cell with a jackass getting out of the can once a week to go to AA meetings. 200 guys in that can, and one guy, one guy goes to AA meetings. Don't tell me that the old shooter upstairs doesn't move in strange and mysterious ways. Once a week, this guy would go out and he'd go to one of these meetings, you see, and he'd hear all this stuff, and he'd come back and he was just dying to talk to somebody about it. Well, you don't have a large audience in a jail cell, you see. <laughs> and once a week, I'd sit there and he'd fill me with all of this, and he got to the point where he said, you know, I'd fix it with a sergeant, Norm, you go to one of the meetings with me, and I had to tell him, buddy, I don't need that outfit. I don't have a drinking problem. Hell, I'm a victim of unusual circumstances, you know. That, that guy pulled that rotten car in front of me, and he well, your case is different. You and your brothers are all a bunch of lousy drunks. You ought to do it. You never handled your booze right. You ought to do something about it. But not me. And your age. What the hell life's over for you, buddy? You're 36. <laughs> God, you know, what's left for a guy 36? The backside of the hill. I don't believe that today, being 49 this year, you see. But, of course, that is all to get it ever. Then, no, uh, life is long gone. Seed's planted. That's the important thing. The seed was planted. Eight and a half years later, I picked up a telephone looking for a guy named Sullivan and an outfit called Alcoholics Anonymous. I found the program, but I never found Sully, not in a sober sense or physical sense. I used to hear about him. They told me he'd been to Camarilla for the rest, and he was in there for the rest of his life because he had a wet brain. And I heard he was back on the streets again. And then last December, I was in a meeting, and it was a meeting like this. It was an afternoon meeting on Sunday. And I looked down the front row, and uh, I got... I couldn't believe my eyes, and I got so choked up I couldn't talk because there sat the man who I'd shared a cell with some 26, 27 years before that, sitting there in the meeting, and when it was over with, we had an opportunity to talk, and I said, how's it going? He says, God, Norm, I got nine weeks in. I got nine weeks of sobriety. And at that point, <clears throat> when it, it kind of hits you, and when guys say, don't give up on them, Norm, never give up on the guy that's out there still trying to make it in because you never know. And if it's only a prayer you're going to send up from time to time for crying out loud, send it on up. Take a minute out of your busy life, Norm, and send a prayer up for the guy that's still out there suffering. And he brought it back one more time, that God moves in strange and mysterious ways. Well, I left that city jail and went back out to drinking. <clears throat> I went to work for one of the largest construction firms in the world. I stayed with these people 11 years. In the 11-year period, I was at the right place at the right time and ended up with a good job. And a good job was a necessary part of my life then because I got a big overhead by now. I'd been, <clears throat> my bar associates had told me one of my biggest problems was that I was single, I ought to get married. And they said, don't go off half cocked, don't marry a woman that's got a decent job. So I've been running with this red-headed Irish girl and we decided to turn the trick and we got married and she had a good job and everything was lovely for two months. And I come home and she says, Norm, I've been to the doctor and I'm pregnant and i got to quit my job. The doctor said i got the whole house come down around me then, you know. <laughs> Do you ever tell an alcoholic something you don't want to hear? I don't want to hear that, you know. <laughs> but being a big-hearted alcoholic, you sat there and you think, well, hell, that caper takes about <clears throat> nine months. We'll give her two to get on her feet. Then we'll get the rotten job back and then everything's going to be just like it was. Hell, that was 26 years ago. That woman ain't turned to tap since. <laughs> 
she got herself in that shape eight times. I couldn't believe it. I used to sit on that bar still going, how the hell can she do that to me, you know? Oh, yeah. And I'm never home that much anymore either, you know. This created a problem, so I had to have the job with the money. Being a bar drinker is a big overhead. It's not like being a home drinker. Home drinkers are low overhead drinkers, but you never get the proper coverage if you're a home drinker. I don't think the alcoholic reaches his fullest potential. Who's there to tell how good you are? Her. She don't believe any of it anyway. But if you're a saloon drinker, you can get out and circulate, you know. Yeah, you can let a world of people know how good you are. I like them joints. God, I like them. I, I like the dark lights in there. <clears throat> I like the, the smell that kind of hung in. And if you had a sinus problem, you just suck it in. And it blew it all out, you know. I think better than anything else, once you smell that you knew you were there, you know. God, yeah, you're there. And you, you climb up on that bar stool and you order yourself up one and, and you're surrounded by the intellectual giants of the world. That's what I like. I like being around the big money. Where do you find the big money and the giants of industry? You find them sitting on the bar stool about one o'clock in the morning. That's right. We're sitting there building castles in the air and forming corporations and putting partnerships together and lying a lot, too. <laughs> We're talking in millions and spending in thousands, and we don't have ten between us, but we talk a hell of a lot. Yeah. And when you get tired of talking and lying to each other, you can sit there and you look in that mirror, and they put mirrors and bars so that alcoholics can sit there with that perpetual Maybelline look, that wide eye, you know. <laughs> you can spot an alky a mile off and a joint. Just look down the bar and you see the guy sitting there like that. You know, he's got that... As far away, he's mesmerized with his own sense of well-being. And you know what's going through his head? He's sitting there going, You good-looking devil, you Jesus. <laughs> and as you bring that drink up, you catch sight of your arm. You go, oh, God, you. So well-built, too, you know. <laughs> 150 pounds ringing wet in them days that I couldn't lick my lips to let alone anybody else. <laughs> But that whiskey, it brings it all out. It makes you a lover and a killer. And some nights you should drunk, you can't remember what you are. My lover or a killer, you know. You're sitting there with that $30 Smile and Frankie Gordon suit on. You got 50 cents worth of whiskey all down the front of you. A little chili and mustard on your tie. You smell bad and you can't talk. You got a little snuff running down the side there. And you're romantic as hell. You're one step away from disaster. If I had to go to the men's room, it's all over. There he goes. Oh, my God. Yeah. The lover of the San Gabriel Valley. There he is. Or you make some cute remarks to the bartender, and he 86 is you. But if you've got the personality that i got, that's never enough. You go for 87. And you give him another cute remark. And 87 is when you're opening the front door with your head crunch on the way through to end up out in the parking lot with that pavement rash. That's a famous disease of all alcoholics. <clears throat> Running your head through gravel parking lots, you get that big scab on the side. It's called pavement rash. Or falling into pyracantha bushes is nice. Ending up sleeping in the front seat of your car. <coughs> AA is filled with car sleepers. You can always tell a new guy that doesn't any reach in car sleeping. He generally sits at his first meeting like this. <laughs> 
after having your head screwed under the armrest all night, you know. And when the sun zooms through the windshield at 6 o'clock in the morning, that's called a spiritual awakening before a.m., you know. Boy, you wake up in the front seat of that car, what an experience that is. <laughs> your head's throbbing and you're, you feel terrible and your mouth tastes bad and your teeth itch. You just want to tear them out. You look down at your dashboard and you threw up all over that day. And you left your lights on, too. Oh, did you ever think the window was down and it was up? Blah, there she goes. Splat, you wrap your head against the window. And you sit there and say to yourself, drinking's fun, I'm having a good time. I've just got to get the hell out of L.A. They got this bad whiskey in L.A., you know, yeah. Let me get on down to Big Spring, Texas. Man, do they love me down in Big Spring. Yeah, bootleg whiskey and pearl beer. God, yeah. Or was it El Paso they loved me? Or Moses Lake, Washington, or Seattle. And after I'd run through it all, there was only one thing left to do, and that was to, to get some sleep. And where am I going to get it? Well, I'm tapped out, and i got no friends left, so i got to go home to see that red-headed woman. <clears throat> That's the only place I can get back in. That one more lie, one more promise, and she's going to let me in. So, and you stand there with it, oh, the tears run, baby, Jesus. Oh, well, wait, I got this bad whiskey in L.A., you know. Yeah. Let me get on down to Big Spring, Texas. Man, did they love me down in Big Spring. Yeah, bootleg whiskey and pearl beer. God, yeah. Or was it El Paso they loved me? Or Moses Lake, Washington, or Seattle. And after I'd run through it all, there was only one thing left to do, and that was to to get some sleep. And where am I going to get it? Well, I'm tapped out, and i got no friends left, so i got to go home to see that red-headed woman. <clears throat> That's the only place I can get back in. That's one more lie, one more promise, and she's going to let me in. <laughs> so, and you stand there with it, oh, the tears run, baby, Jesus. Uh, give you a break. Uh, i got a hell of a deal for you, you know. <laughs> you remember that priest you were talking about? Now, that new one. I'm going down to make a new pledge. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the track. Pledge number 73, there you go. You scheme to get in, and then once you get in, you scheme to get back out again, you know. The alcoholic is a paradox. Well, I'll walk into that house, and before she'd ever smell my breath, she'd go, you're drunk again. And I'd always go through the same thing. I was dumbfounded. How did she know? I wonder who's telling her that I've been drinking. We had a great dialogue at our house. <clears throat> I'd walk in, and she'd say, you're drunk again. And I'd say, who me? Like 37 guys are with you, yeah. And she'd say, yeah, you. Then you hit her with a big one. You say, woman, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> Don't that get him right there? God. And then she'd mimic me as only whether my wish could do it. Do I know who I'm talking to? God, that used to upset me. That's a humiliating experience. You've had a hell of a time. You've been out there drunk for three days and you're tired, you know. God, you're tired. And you're going through all this humility. And you had a good friend with you. Your new business partner. You met in the bar last night. Invite him home. Very sad, you know. And I tell her, woman, you apologize to me and my best friend. I couldn't remember his name. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm leaving. Right now she's hysterical. She goes down to the bedroom and throws all my clothes out. And you pick them up and <clears throat> carry them on out to the car. The clothes-packing alcoholic. He's a joy to his neighborhood, isn't he? <laughs> when you tire of watching the late show, you can sit there and watch him. Here he comes, you know. The old, 
sometimes you get a hell of a show sometimes you forget these trousers. Here he comes, you know. One cuter than a turkey need alcoholic with an armload of clothes coming out. Yeah. And he drives away honking his horn. Letting the neighbors know I'm leaving, going, gone. <laughs> Two days later, zap, here he comes back again. Like a yo-yo. Sunday afternoon is a unique day to come home. Everybody's out working in the yard. Here comes the old alky, you know, down the street. Got the damn grip on the wheel because he's got a flat tire. <laughs> he's too drunk to change it, so he just drives on it. There he goes. They call them rim drivers in AA, you know. Here, here he comes down the street with that old tire flopping in there, and the sparks are flying. They're pulling the kids out of the stove away so you don't kill anybody. You get to your house, and you drive that baby up on the lawn, open the door, and fall out. There he is. You get up an hour later, the first thing that comes to mind is, I wonder if anybody saw me. <laughs> because if you're a true alcoholic, you go through life thinking nobody knows I drink, yes. Everybody lays on the lawn. We lay on the lawn because lawn is good for flu. And we're the only people that know that. And as I ran through the lottery in my life, the whiskey took away every loving thing I had. Everything that meant to me, that whiskey took away. Little by little, but the wheels of alcoholism grind very slow, but very fine. And you give it enough time, and it's going to get every loving thing you got. I went home one day, and Red said, and she says, Norm, you're going to have to get the hell out of this house. I've called an attorney. This time is different than the other 20 times I've thrown you out. I've called an attorney, and I've put in for separate maintenance. I've asked for a restraining order to be put against you. <clears throat> the kids and I are neurotic because of you. You're drinking yourself to death, Norm. You'll never live to be 35 years old, and we don't want to be here at the end. You've drug us down that gutter as deep as you're going to get us. You know, I sit on that couch night after night. I look down the street. When you see a car come up, and you never come. And I die every time. And then a siren runs, and I die again because I think the cops got you. But this time, I find you dead in the middle of the street, Norm, and you're never coming home to us. So you just get out of here. <clears throat> you leave us alone. Don't send us any money, Norm. You'll never get that far ahead. Just get the hell out of our life. And you walk out to your car, don't you? You drive away and you say to yourself, Christ, why me? God, why me? I'm not a bad guy. Not basically. Why not Charlie and Fred and the rest of these guys? How come you got to get me again? You and I know, huh? If you're alcoholic and across the invisible line, it's only a matter of time until that booze is going to get that family in. Sure, there's isolated cases of people put up with that crap for 30 years. Always hoping that jackass is going to straighten out. 30 years they watch him flop in and out of the house, you know. 30 years of picking up the pizza. 30 years of the lion for him. 30 years of telling the relatives and friends, no, don't come over, he's got the flu. Flew under the bed, what he flew, you know, yeah. <clears throat> Hell, I wouldn't put up with it 30 days, let alone 30 years. God gives him a lot of strength, doesn't he? He's kind of a left-handed thing he heads down to him, but thank God he does, huh? Because you see a miracle. <clears throat> when you see a man and his woman, they're coming into their first AA meeting, and they walk through the door. And the guy's all knocked out, and he don't look too good. And you look at the woman, and she don't look too good either. And you look in her eyes, and, and there's a story there. And the story says, this jackass has tried everything there is out there, and, and none of it ever worked. And I'm sure this isn't going to work either. But we'll try. Now you see the same couple a couple of months later. The guy, he's all sharp out and looks pretty good, and his eyes are clear. And you look at the woman, and in her eyes is a brand-new story. And the story says, she goes, um, I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen, and finally it's happened. And today we're happier than we've ever been in our life, and it's made possible through a miracle that you people choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous, and a miracle it is. To the new people, we can't guarantee you that that's the way it's going to work out. We don't guarantee you anything but sobriety and a way of life. Now, whatever you're doing, you're going to be better at. 
We don't guarantee you're going to make a ton of scratch and drive a big iron or live in a house on a hill. But your woman's ever going to bring you back in. If you're a ditch digger, buddy, you're going to be a better ditch digger. Doesn't sound like a hell of a lot, but it's a lot more than I had when I got here. I can include one more thing if you'll stick around and buy the package of this program. The day will come when they will respect you. You may never be reunited, but the day will come when they will respect you. And that's a lot more than I had when I got here. Losing families doesn't necessarily bring people to the program. Losing the respect of the people I worked with and did business with didn't bring you to the program either. It's an aggregate total of all of these things. I and mean, then being worked on by experts in the business doesn't bring me to the program. Some people it does. The humility of having a boss call you in and say, Norm, the next time I catch you drinking on the job, buddy, you're out of here. Thrilled. And Norm, you'll never leave L.A. County for us again. Never. No, no, you're too damn expensive. We can't trust you or depend on you anymore. Get the hell out of my office. And I left with that feeling that the alcoholic gets. Humility and humiliation. We know a lot about it because we've been humiliated so many times. The humiliation from that experience. And I went to the bar that night and I drank the booze and I thought about that rotten bum. A man that I admired as much as my own father. And I'm thinking, how the hell can he talk to me that way? After all I've done for him and that rotten company. I'm going to fix his wagon. I'm going to quit. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, then I'm going to form my own company. Then I'm going to run them out of business. Then he's going to have to come and see me for a job. Yeah. Then he's going to walk in my big office, and I'm going to say, I remember you, Matt. Get the hell out of there. Sure. And then you know what I did next? <laughs> I had another drink, and I dreamed another dream, and I fell off another bar stool. That's what I did. Well, all of these things in total helped bring me here. I woke up. In February the 23rd of 1954, and I got off the rotten floor, <clears throat> and I went in. And I called the central office in Los Angeles. A had been brought to my attention one more time. A friend of mine had seen my neighbor, had seen a show called Come Back Little Shiva. And they had AA in it. And he come home and told my wife, you better get him there, that's what he needs. And in that point in my life, I said, no. I ain't got a drinking problem, I got a people problem. The rotten people out there are my problem. I'm a victim of unusual circumstances, I know alcoholic. But that day, that day, I picked up the phone and I called the central office in Los Angeles and talked to a man. God love that man. His name was John Carroll, and I'm sure John won't mind me breaking his anonymity. John died after I'd been sober a year and a half. <clears throat> the reason he was such a marvelous man, he learned early in his AA life in order to keep what I got. I got to give it away. That he gave it away by the town. He worked in that central office for being given away what he found. God love him. And that morning he says, do you have a drinking problem? I said, as sure as they'll have. You want to do something about it? I said, do. He said, here's some numbers, call them. And I called him. And I kept calling until I got a hold of the guy. And he said, hang tight, I'll be up there in a couple of hours. And he walked into my house. And he sat there and he talked. <clears throat> not with pity, not with hate. He sat there with compassion and understanding because he'd been there. He was a hard-hearted sponsor, you know the type. They go to school for hard-hearted sponsors, you know. <laughs> He cited the fact, he says, Christ, you got your ring and, wrist and wristwatch, buddy, so you probably got some more drinking to do. But if you don't, here's the way it's going to be. He said, I don't pick guys up and take them to meetings. I don't believe in them. No, he says, you get in your car and drive down there tonight. Temple City, and I'll meet you there. And if you haven't got a car, take the bus. And if you haven't got bus money, it's a hell of a walk, but that's the way to take it away. <laughs> Needless to say, I was very upset with him. I didn't like him, and I didn't like the way he was talking to me. Sensitive, all alcoholics are very sensitive people. 
The only thing I agreed with him is when he said, if I can make this program, you can. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a fact. If that rotten old man can make it, anybody can. You know. <laughs> so I got in my car that night with all the curiosity, with all the heat on me, and all the humiliation I ever wanted to feel. And I drove down to that Temple City group. The Temple City group in them days used to meet in Rosemead, the little city of Rosemead. That group meets in Arcadia today. I just kind of throw that in. The Temple City group never got to Temple City. Hell of a note, isn't it? But <clears throat> that's Alcoholics Anonymous, all right. As a matter of fact, the people that attended that meeting were from El Monte, Ballin Park, Monrovia, and Azusa. We never did get a guy from Temple City at that meeting. <laughs> we used to meet in this Legion Hall. And on the corner was a liquor store, the Legion Hall, and a cemetery. And the cliche of the group used to be, if you get by here and stop here, you won't make it over there. You saw the and they all become hysterical about it. Alcoholics after they get sober get a warped sense of humor, you know. God, they laugh about the strangest things. This is one of them wealthy groups you hear about in AA. We had so damn much money in that group, we'd have donuts twice, before and after the meeting. Yeah. And we'd buy five or six jelly donuts, and you save them for new guys coming in, see. Yeah, I'll walk in the door, the guy's shaking your head, you know, and slap you on the back, gives you a cup of rotten coffee, and then he says, here, have a jelly donut. I don't want a donut. Yeah, you're looking down at something you left on the street last night. I don't want to know that. That red jelly donut. And they all become hysterical about it. Did you see that guy? God, boy, he's going to choke to death over it. <laughs> and the only good part of it was that if you stayed sober for any period of time, they'd let you have the next new guy that came in. <laughs> but I was introduced to a bunch of people. <clears throat> It was 80, 90 people in that group at that time. <laughs> I was maybe introduced 10 or 15. We're all standing around, you know, and everybody is talking at the same time. You know how they do in AA, and they're all talking about something different. <clears throat> and nobody ever gets to finish anything he's talking about. Every time a guy gets to the punchline, somebody interrupts him. <laughs> I spent 19 years in AA in limbo up there, waiting to hear the end of a story. You never get to hear it. In the beginning, you know, you hear that phrase, keep coming back, and you think, that's why. <laughs> Someday I'll hear the end of the story and I keep coming back, maybe. You and I know that isn't fact, but it's a damnedest thing. And they're smoking them rotten cigarettes, you know, and drinking our coffee and eating donuts, and then the meeting begins. And a meeting typical of today in this whole total convention. The guy stands up in front of the group and tells everybody what a jackass he is, and they become hysterical. Talks about going to jail and people beating him up. <clears throat> Every time you get beat up, they laugh about it. Every time you go to jail, they laugh. He talks about drinking Jamaican ginger, giving the Jake leg. Kimberly bumps the better point of the hospital for two months and they went clear out of the chair already, you know. <laughs> what do you think they ever heard? Boy, you're sitting there and you're a new guy and you're sitting there thinking, what the hell's going on around here, you know? And you get to think, I'll never make it. I won't even make it in AA. God. I've only been in about 25 jails and I drank a little vitalis once, but I've never been out of that stuff he's talking about. No. Until he qualified it. He prefaced the remark as all the speakers I used to hear. They prefaced it by saying, it doesn't make any difference, buddy, what you drank or where you drank it or the amount you consumed. It's what it's doing to you. And if it's tearing up any part of your life, you don't have to go any farther than you've been. And I could parallel that. I sat there and I could say, yes, sir, my friend speaker. It's tearing the hell out of my life, and I don't want to go no farther. And you said I didn't have to go no farther, and I believe that. I may have disbelieved and disagreed with everything else that that man had to say that day or that evening, but I couldn't disagree with that. Yes, that's fact. And he went on to talk about his program and AA and, and what it meant for him and how he, he made the transition and he bought the total package. He, 
he stopped taking and he started to give. And, and when he did, <clears throat> his kids come to see him one day. His woman had divorced and remarried, but his kids come to see him one by one. And they learn to like him. And then they learn to love him. And then they learn to respect him. And had I had the foresight to look around that day, you know what I'd have seen? That evening I'd have seen three or four tough A guys, sitting big, tough ones, sitting in that A.B. and the tears are rolling down their eyes, and they're crying because they're happy for him. And the story of the program was told to me that night, and I've heard it hundreds of times. And maybe it's oversimplification, but it's my understanding of AA. They laughed because they were miserable, and they cried because they were happy, and they called it alcoholic synonymous. How do you clear away the wreckage of your rotten, lousy, crummy past? How do you move that junk out? You learn to laugh a little, don't you? You come into the giddy, there isn't much to laugh about. I wouldn't be here if I couldn't laugh. And in spite of yourself, you sit in the meeting with something that you go, oh, God, don't let me see me. You know? <laughs> yeah. It starts to come out, and the laughter starts, and you parallel your life with his life. You're not laughing at him, you're laughing with him. And then the day comes when the transition is yours. You're sitting in an AA group, and a guy says, you got to give. you got to give a little, buddy, to get a little back. It's a given program. And before you know it, and in spite of yourself, it'll happen. I'm a taker. That's what I am all my life. I took. I stole every loving thing there was out in that city street. I give you nothing, nothing to nobody. Unless there's something in it for me, I'll give you a dollar, I want five back. But one day, the transition is made. And you learn to give. And we have so many ways. You can pick up the ashtrays. You can make the coffee. You can be the secretary of a group. Central service, general service, institutional, dozens of ways you can give for the hell of it. There's no compromise kind of giving you and I understand here and there. You can't sell it. You can't buy it. You can give it. And when you give it, you get it back. You got it all then. You got the whole package. And the man said to me one night after an A meeting, Norm, buddy, what the hell you got? It's the good. And I said, if you're talking about something in a material sense, not a hell of a lot, but a lot more than I had when I got here. It don't take a mathematical giant to figure it out. When I got here, I had nothing. And any way you want to cut it, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. So every loving thing I got now is more than I had when I got here. And something in a material sense is fine, and I have nothing against it, and I'll go for that big score out there, but in the bitter end. When it's all over, buddy, and they're hanging you out to dry, it isn't going to be what you've accumulated that's made the difference. It's going to be what you give away, isn't it? in the final analysis of it all. And we have the program have that opportunity. And when the man says to me, Norm, what do you have? I, I say, I've got what I look for in the whiskey, buddy. i got a sense of well-being from time to time. What a feeling it is when you go out and call on that drunk that's still separated. You sit there, and it's a ten side, you call on him. He called you at ten o'clock at night. you got to get out of bed at four. As you walk out to your car, you think, I hope I sprain my ankle so I don't have to go, you know. <laughs> But you go anyway, and you sit with this guy, and you talk to him, and all of a sudden he says something, and you never heard it before. You never heard him say that before. And you think, man, he's got it this time. He talks a little different. And you leave, and you look at your watch, and it's two in the morning. And you sit down in your car, and you drive away, and you're not tired. You're not tired anymore. you got a feeling that comes all over you that just kind of grabs you. It's called a, a sense of well-being, that feeling that you get inside from doing something for somebody and you don't want nothing back. That's what I looked for in the whiskey. I drank whiskey to get that feeling, that sense of well-being when I was up on that plateau. It was temporary, down the chute, and in the morning, the sense of well-being was replaced by a friend of mine called Remorse that reached in and tore my guts out one more time. And the only thing that put remorse out of my life was, was whiskey. 
But I got enough whiskey and I got no remorse and I traded in the whiskey for the giving of Alcoholics Anonymous and my reward was tenfold. They gave me a sense of well-being from time to time as I walked down that city street. To tell you all of these things I took away from that first meeting, this is not true. The only thing I really took away from that first meeting that I attended was this guy as he stood up in front of that group and he looked good and he looked sharp. <clears throat> His eyes were clear and he had a set of threads on, must run him a hundred and a half. And I'm thinking, man, if he didn't get nothing else from this AA outfit, didn't he get a set of drapes out of it? That's all right. Why? I am impressed with that. I'll stick around a little bit too and I'll have me a set, all right. Which proves the point that 80% of the people never remember 80% of what you had to say, but they never forget how you look. By example, isn't it? The program is by example, which goes back to that old cliche. What he is speaks so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. By example, as the man stood up there. And if I wanted that package, I'd find it here. And I continued to come to the program to find what he had. And as I look back, I think, God, I almost kicked it all out the door. The second meeting I went to was damn near the last. I went to an old-timers meeting over a little town called Pasadena. Where the hell else would it be, you know? God, the Rose Parade place. <clears throat> old-timers were there at that meeting. God. And the speaker that night, he'd been sober 137 years this time. And he talked, and when he talked, he showed a picture of himself, a great big blown-up mugshot taken up when he's doing time in the L.A. County Jail. And he was trying to draw a parallel. He was saying, look at me when I was drinking, look at me now. And I look at the picture, I looked at Hardy, and I thought, he looked better drunk. <laughs> no doubt about it. What is AA outfit ages the hell out of these guys? they got to get out of here. If you're looking for excuses, there's hundreds. The next day, I bought a pint of whiskey, took a drag, and threw it away. From that day to this, and that was the 23rd of February, it hasn't been necessary to take the drink. At the third meeting I went to, I met a half a dozen guys, and we're all about the same age. We started running together. And we started having meetings after the meetings. They're very important. The meetings after the meetings, you get to criticize all the speakers and all the leaders. I went. <laughs> we noticed there was a lot of old fellows on that, uh, in our group there in the San Gabriel Valley that didn't know what they were doing. And they were getting a lot of bad speakers. And the only way to change all of this was to form our own group our own clique to be against them other cliques out there. That's very important. And in those days, you had to have a year of sobriety to be a secretary of a group. So we thought, we'd get the first guy to get the year in, we're going to run him for secretary, we're going to change it. So old Stan was the first guy to get a year in. And we run him for secretary. We went out to four other groups, we imported everybody, loaded the ballots. Believe it or not, those were big political deals in those days in our groups out there. John Gabriel Valley, when he became secretary, we loaded the ballot, and old Stan was the winner, became the secretary of the group, and right away he joined the other cliques. <laughs> yeah. But you come to find out that the only clicks in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you get an opportunity to open the eyes. The only clicks I ever found in AA was a click, click, click in my head up there. Yeah. All I've ever found in Alcoholics Anonymous is a bunch of people that come from all walks of life. There's a lot of, a few guys out there that I wouldn't do any drinking with, and they're not going to do any drinking with me. And there's a few folks I'm not going to share all of my sobriety with, and they're not going to share theirs with me. But there's not a man, nor is there a woman of this program that would dislike me so bad he'd like to see me take a drink. What a hell of a deal that's got to be. He may disagree with everything I stand for in my AA life, in my business life, in my church life. But would I call him up and say, Johnny Christ, will you come to see me? He'd say, hang in, I'll be there. And he'd come and he'd sit there and he'd talk with compassion and with understanding. Even though he disagreed with all walks of my life. Not to the point that he'd like to see me take a drink. 
that he would be my friend. And that has got to be the best deal I ever had in my life. And I'm a guy that looks half the world trying to find the best deal that I didn't find until I got here, till I found this group of people who will know most everything about me, yet will still accept me. Not for where I've been or for where I'm trying to go, but for what I'm trying to be today. And I'd like to tell you that every day is a holiday out there and every meal is a banquet, huh? <clears throat> that isn't the way it is, is it? Now we're going to give you the equipment to stand out there, new folks, and be counted, just like everybody else. I used to think we ought to be able to get points for every time, every year, you know, you got a cake, you got to get 10 points. I would put them on his car, you know, when you stand out there and pick up 10 points, you're like, give me a break, buddy, you know. And it's over. 35 points now, no. We're going to give you the equipment to stand there and be counted. Norm, if you're big enough to take the good days, you got to be big enough to take the rotten and the lousy and the heartbreak and the grief and the misery. And I've had some of mine and you've had yours and we'll see some more and we ain't looking forward to it. I can remember in 62 I walked out of St. Luke's Hospital and I stood there going, God damn it, why? Jesus, God, you did it to me. You tore me up, buddy. He asked me to carry a load so heavy I can't cut it. Yet inside I knew he's a, the old shooter, he's a fine old man. He never gives you more than what you can pack, does he? He gives the big crosses to the big horses and the small ones to guys like Norm. Instead of standing there, Norm crying the poor mouth about what he asked you to carry or what he didn't give you, why don't you thank him for what you have? Why don't you take a minute out of your busy life and look down the street, Norm? What do you see? I see a man carrying a load ten times the size of mine. That's what I see. And the only difference between you and he is that he carries his with great dignity. He doesn't find it necessary to cry the poor mouth about what he didn't get. He stood there and was counted and thanked him for what he had. And God, when it comes again, let me stand, my friend. Give me strength to stand and be counted. Thank you for what I got. And when the man says to me, Norm, what do you got? I'll say, this is what I've got, my friend. I've got 19 years walking down the sunny side of the street. That's what I've got. And if I don't get no more than that, I'm overpaid. Because guys are going <clears> to <throat> not see 19 days or 19 weeks on my street. They're going to walk down the street of booze and fantasy and busted dreams and broken hearts and tears by the bucket ball. They're going to die out there. They aren't going to see what I've seen. They aren't going to wake up in the morning and make the decisions of which way they want to live. I've woke up now for 19 years, day by day, and made the decision of which way I want to live. Nobody makes that for me. I make it. Nobody's got the screws and the heat on me today. I'm not coming from behind. I make it. I wake up this morning and I made the decision and I can say to myself, Norm, buddy, you don't need to justify your existence out there to none of them. Nobody, but nobody has got the screws on you, my friend. You can walk down the sunny side this day and on that street is living and is life and on that street is respect and respect for myself, the thing that I lost. The major thing probably that drove me to Alcoholics Anonymous was the man that stole my self-respect. And for three and a half, they gave it back to me. And that book was the story and my self-respect and the way of life. And so I walked that street this day and I have my self-respect. And I'm respected by people that I work and do business with. And I'll finish a day out there in that jungle in downtown L.A. And I'll get in my car and I'll drive home. And I'll open the door and I'll walk in and in my house is going to be... A red-headed woman, and she's my woman, and I'm respected there by her because I'm her old man, and I'm respected by a few of them bandits that are still living in my joint today <laughs> because I'm the father. Nobody cried at my house today because their old man was drunk and tore it up. I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years for me not to hit their mother. 
I watched them go from small ones into big ones. That's what I got, my friends. And I've sent them to school to become educated. Nobody in my family ever cut it that far. And I've taken daughters downtown and I've bought them high-heeled shoes and prom dresses. I've walked into a store where a little girl was just a chicken. And she put on the shoes and she became a woman. And we stood and we looked at each other with respect for each other. Me because I'm her old man. And her because she's my daughter. Not for where I'd been or where I was trying to go, but for what we were then. And on those moments, I got choked up. I couldn't talk. And when the man says to me, what do you got? I say, I got quite a bit. For a year, three and a half years ago, I sent out 400 invitations for people to come to see a girl get married. And they came. And I can remember the day that I could send out 400 invitations for people to come to see me shot. Nobody comes. Nah. But that day I was part of it. Yeah. And the music played. And a little girl, and she was just a chicken the other day. And she walked out in a pure white dress, and she grabbed my arm, and we walked down the aisle crying, her and me. And I gave her to the big jackass she married. <laughs> But you know, before old jackass ever got there, there was just a little old girl and me as we walked down through. And as I looked out into that sea of people that was sitting there in that church and the 60, 70 guys from AA that was there, and they were sharp and they were dressed and they were clear-eyed and the tears were running, too. And in their heart and in their head, the story kind of reached out and grabbed you and said, Norm, buddy, God, I see you there. Jesus, Norm. You really look good today. Too bad, Norm, buddy. Uh, too bad the rest of the people here in this church don't know who you are. Huh? Too bad they don't know where you came from and what it took to bring you here. And as moments like that, I want to stand and say, Charlie, buddy, Jesus, it's too bad. Huh? Too bad they don't know who we are and where we came from and above all, what we have. Because without you, Charlie, my friend, and so many others like you, and the grace of God and a red-headed woman, I could have missed it all. Thanks a million. God bless you all. <laughs>